we're looking at this next teaching in our We Believe series, which deals with sanctification. Last week, we talked about the importance of growing in the grace of Jesus Christ. And I sort of want to take that a step further today by talking about the theology of the belief of sanctification. These past months, we have had what is truly a series on theology, the, the most critical or important aspects of the Christian faith. Certainly, what I'm teaching on, I cannot cover everything in the Scripture, but these are key beliefs that we adhere to. They're beliefs that we hold in our minds and value in our hearts that shape who we are in this world. And this key one we're looking at now is this concept of sanctification. So I want to revisit some verses that I taught on about three years ago from Philippians and Ephesians. We're going to look at a few today. Because in them, Paul makes this interesting statement about our salvation. He, in two different places, and this is certainly not the only place we read ideas like this, he encourages us to, to work out our salvation. In other words, to, there, there's sort of something connected to salvation that I want to talk about this morning. And one of the key ways he challenges us to do that is by thinking about our minds, what we, what we do with our minds, examining the very nature of what it means to be able to think. And so these verses teach us something about how change takes place in the Christian faith, what we want to call life change, which is a synonym for the word sanctification. The key difference between general life change and Christian life change is that we are trying to become more like the image of Christ. So change in the Christian worldview simply means our lives today look more like Jesus tomorrow. There is a very clear object of our change. This is a subject written about a lot in many places in the scripture because becoming like Christ, sanctification, what we will refer to as change for the rest of this morning, is such an important part of the Christian life. That's the idea behind what Paul is communicating in these two epistles. And it's not hard to see that most people in our world are generally wired to want to change and grow in life. If you have had goals in your life, if you have had sort of, whether they're work goals or personal goals, if you have had something you would want to be tomorrow that you are yet today, that is a change goal. And there's a reason for this. There's a reason why these types of books, these types of teachings are very popular. I mean, there's a gazillion books written on them. You know, if you search 10 steps to something, you will likely have a million hits on people stating how you can very easily become something tomorrow that you are not yet today. Change matters in our world, and people want that. And there's a reason for this. You know, we believe God created us to be a people who do change, who value change and desire to grow. That's the whole trajectory of Christianity coming to Christ and growing in His grace. And that's what we're going to talk about today. It's piggybacked on what we talked about last week. These are certainly standalone teachings, but I would encourage you if, you, if you missed the foundation of what we talked about last week, it will only enhance what we'll talk about today, although what we'll talk about today can completely stand on its own. And this leads me to the only we believe truth that I want to share with you this morning. We believe God is continually working in our lives through the process of sanctification. And the things that I want to point out here are continually and sanctification. Simply meaning God is always working in our lives to help us become more like Christ. Revisit Philippians 2.12. Paul tells us this here. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only my presence, but now more, much more my absence. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that last sort of phrase is what I want to talk about this morning. And so before we proceed here, there, there are some verses in the scripture that can be somewhat controversial and maybe even a little confusing. And this is one that over the years has had that bent towards it. And so before we proceed, let's be clear about what this verse is and isn't teaching when it comes to our understanding, frankly, of believing that it is in Christ alone that we are loved by the Father. But here you have a verse where Paul is telling us to work out the very thing, our salvation, that we deeply believe comes only to us by the grace of Jesus. 
So I want to point out some things that this isn't saying and some things that it is. First, Paul is not teaching that we have to do anything to work for our salvation. It's, in, it's very important that we hear this. Jesus' gift of grace showed us on the cross that it is the ground upon which our salvation is built. I think I taught for four weeks on Jesus in this series. And if you have any doubts about the fact that it is in Jesus alone that we can be reconciled to God our Father, those teachings would be great to revisit. We have already established in prior teachings based on the Bible that this is not what the Bible teaches. And so I want to make sure we don't hear or imply something here that Paul is not saying. And that fact coupled with the reality that understanding this verse, if we were to take this verse this way, that we have to work in order to earn the love of God, this would stand in contrast to every other teaching in the scripture about Jesus' offer of salvation to us. A good way to be able to interpret scripture is to use other scripture. So if you ever come across a verse that might seem out of sorts, or one that seems maybe a little bit, you know, not, not, uh, not in line with what you've thought or read about in the past, one of the greatest ways to clarify what is a potential concern in the scripture is to look at the weight of other scripture. And you are going to be hard-pressed to find a place in the New Testament where we are told to earn our salvation, to, to merit the favor of God. That cannot be earned. It only comes to us in Jesus. We are loved and redeemed by God because of Christ and Christ alone. Paul is saying that, and that's a really amazing truth. What it means is we can actually rest in the fact that our Father has redeemed us. Secondly, though, okay, Paul is saying, and this is sort of where we'll pick up our action steps this morning, our application points. Paul is saying once we understand that, once we know that it's in Jesus alone, we actually have to do something about our salvation. There is that word work in there. And the key word being our. And this distinction between what Jesus did for us, he has died for us on the cross. What a fitting week to begin talking about this as we begin to look to the cross. Lent is the beginning of the recognition of the fact that we believe God came to earth as a man in Jesus Christ and died for our sins. This distinction between what Jesus did for us and what we do in light of what he did for us is saying that those who have been given the gift of salvation, those of us who at some point in our lives have recognized the grace of God through Christ, we actually have a very serious responsibility to care for that gift God has given us, that salvation. In other words, we have to do something, not to earn that salvation, but to nurture and develop that amazing grace in our lives. According to Paul, we have to work out our salvation. We have to practice our faith in a way that validates we actually have one. And you will find that teaching in the New Testament quite repeatedly. Perhaps James is the most important one, the book of James, where we learn that without our, without our pressing into faith, without the application of faith in our lives, without the desire to grow in the grace of Jesus, we could potentially have a faith that isn't a real one. Now, I'm not trying to get you to question your faith this morning as much as I am trying to make the connection between a recognition of the gift of salvation should cause us to want to love and grow in the grace of Christ more deeply. So think of this working the gift of your salvation out like this, this teaching like this. Think of it from this angle. Think of somebody giving you a pretty amazing gift that comes to you absolutely free. But that gift requires an incredibly deep level of love and care on your part once you receive it. The gift is free, but there's an awful lot of responsibility connected to keeping the gift. My family and I personally experienced this reality several years ago while coming home from a trip from the grocery store. And I remember, it's been about two and a half years, uh, this happens a lot to me where 
I really will see something that happens and I will know that this is going to be worked into a teaching one day. It's going to be a really good example. At least I think it will be. You can tell me afterwards. This sort of data banked in my head, I want to share it with you this morning. We were coming home from the grocery store and we were turning off of Williamson, a very busy intersection, into our neighborhood. You know, you're going from cars that are supposed to be doing 45 miles an hour, but they're really doing like 85 miles an hour and they're mad at you when you're only doing 45. That's one of those intersections. If you live in Port Orange, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We were turning off of that road into our subdivision division, super busy intersection, when we immediately noticed a stray dog uh, to our left in very rough shape. The dog looked like an incredibly neglected animal. And so my wife was with me, my three children were with me, and naturally when my kids saw this dog, they were super concerned about it, very concerned that it was going to be hit by a car. And that was a good concern because cars were going very fast, turning in and out of the subdivision onto a very major road. And so they wanted me to get out of the car and grab it. But I am a little hesitant about this because I have no idea what the temperament of the dog is. And on my change list is not getting rabies. I definitely was not looking <laughs> to have that happen today. It wasn't a growth goal in my life. But the, the problem is, is my kids just, they were relentless. They kept asking me to help the dog and I could not not help the dog. So I made a deal with them. I said, I'm going to get out of the car and I will carefully approach the dog. You may not get out of the car until I figure out what's going on here. In other words, if the dog is a stray wolf, you need to call the animal control and help me quickly. And so I get out of the car and, uh, and I'm probably 20 feet from the dog. Uh, the dog is very shy, will not come up to me. And it's obvious this dog has been feral for a very long time. It's nothing but matted hair and bone, essentially at this point, very skinny. The dog did not look well. And so for about 20 minutes, in the very hot Florida sun while my children were in an air-conditioned vehicle, I unsuccessfully tried to coax this dog to come to me, but it would not. I mean, it was very clear the dog was not trusting any human, especially me. And after a few more attempts, I noticed the dog, it took some time, but the dog was starting to approach me. I'm not saying it was getting close, but it would take a couple of steps toward me and then turn around and walk away. And I considered this progress. Eventually, it came close enough that I really believed this was the moment I was going to be able to capture the dog. We're pushing almost 30 minutes now until something very odd and incredibly frustrating happened. This is the kind of stuff you cannot make up in life, okay? So the dog was in reaching distance from me. I mean, I was on my knees and I had it like a couple of feet away when this random driver behind me, keep the, I'm sort of standing here, the dog's in front of me, and exiting the neighborhood is this car. This car abruptly stops, like right next to us, rolls the window down, the person then reaches their arm out of the window and pointed to the dog who was two feet away from me and they yelled at an, an inver a very important fact, one that I was not aware of at this moment. Maybe you're saying now, what did they yell out? Well, it was a critical piece of information. Here it is. They yelled out, hey, that is a stray dog. Literally yelled that at me. And then they rolled their window up and drove off. Not making this up. All that commotion immediately spooked the dog and it ran away from me, totally terrified. And I was angry, like really angry. I wanted to yell at that driver, hey, thank you very much, Captain Obvious, for pointing out that the dog we've been trying to rescue here for now an hour almost is stray. And it was so scared that it never came back to me. Maybe they thought they were doing their civic dog duty, but for me, it reset the whole process. And so eventually what actually happened here is I, I, I felt like the dog was safe enough to approach. My children came out of the car and they were able to get the dog to come close enough within about 10 minutes to be able to put a leash on him to get him home. And that was encouraging, but what was interesting, this is sort of a little side note, is the night before, there's an irony in this, 
The night before, we had watched that Disney movie, Bolt. And I don't know if any of you are familiar with it, but it's a story of a stray dog who tries to get back to his owner. And they were begging me for a dog all night long. And I kept telling them, no, we're not getting a dog because that's too much work. And uh, lo and behold, the very next day, we found this dog. It was sort of like a reminder that maybe God is in control of my animal passions and not me. And so we took this dog. And I told my kids our first responsibility was to try and find its owner. That's the first thing. But it was pretty clear to me that the dog had no collar, no dog tag, no chip. Uh, we called the pound. We called animal control. We did everything we were supposed to do. I even talked to my neighbor, who's a, a deputy for the sheriff's office. He, he's a canine deputy. I just asked him what the best way to proceed was. And after exhausting all the channels of trying to see if somebody lost this dog, it became pretty clear to all of us that this was an unwanted animal and somebody didn't really want it. So it very likely, based on our experience with it now, had a very hard life wherever it came from. And it took months to nurse the dog back to health, but eventually the dog did come back to health. And I have a point in all of this. It's not encouraging you to go find stray animals today, although if you want to do that, go ahead. That day, we literally received an entirely free gift of a dog. We didn't earn that dog. We could not pay for that dog. We weren't even looking for a dog. I was just trying to get the ice cream in the fridge when we got home. To this day, we do believe God gave us that dog to love and to care for it when nobody else would. In the truest sense, it was a free gift. However, one of the greatest challenges we have now is like when I'll tell my children, hey, you need to walk the dog, they, get, they can, you know, pitch a little fit sometimes. They quickly learn that the gift of a dog requires something very significant. You don't just get a dog and move on. You now are charged with the task of taking care of that gift. To take care of a dog is an incredible sacrifice. If you have one, it requires time, efforts. You have to use your finances to buy uh, food and medicine when it's sick. Sometimes I think the dog is taken better care of than I am in my house. That's sort of how it works. Uh, even though the dog is truly a gift to us, the evidence of how much we value the gift is without question seen in what we do with that animal and how much we value the actual gift. And that is sort of what Paul's getting at here. When it comes to working out your salvation, he's saying you cannot earn the gift of Jesus. You just can't. It is truly and freely given to you. However, you can neglect that great gift in a way that you can ruin it or reveal that you care very little for it by the way you treat it. In other words, we can take the grace of Jesus and take advantage of it. So understanding this working out the gift of your salvation, the very spilt blood of Jesus on the cross, is truly one of the keys to us experiencing Christ-centered life change or sanctification. And I hope you'll see in these verses that while the ultimate power for life change is found in Jesus' salvation in heaven, we cannot do anything for that. There are also things that Scripture teaches us we should be working out on earth to bring it about in more meaningful and fruitful ways in our lives, to deepen our understanding, to grow in that grace. And the first step, really the only one I want to talk about this morning in working out your salvation in any area of your life, begins by taking a serious look at your mind. This is a teaching found a lot in the Bible. All throughout Scripture, it's clear that one of the gateways, it's not the only one, but it's a main one, that the gateway to lasting life change in your heart, deep-seated life change, begins with examining the way that you think about things. This is why we read Ephesians 4:17 earlier. I'll read it to you now. Paul says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. In both places... Paul uses a pretty forceful language as he challenges us to examine our salvation and the thoughts connected to it. These are commands from him. And in Ephesians, he insists that we do this with the full weight and authority of the risen Lord Jesus. He's saying, in the grace, in the power, in the authority, in everything you know Jesus to be, I tell you this and I insist on it in the name of Jesus, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. 
And what he's showing us in both passages is when a person truly finds Jesus, God really does something pretty profound. He immediately enables a way of thinking in our minds that allows us to see and understand things the way that he does, to work things out like he does, to grow into his image. And that from the, from the moment of our salvation, you know, God's working in our lives without question, even before we come to him. But when we get to the place where we recognize who Jesus is and what he has done for us, it's almost like we enter new territory. It's like a, a new switch has been thrown in our hearts and our minds that begins the lifelong process of him teaching us to see our lives from his perspective. And this new way of thinking will usually stand in sharp contrast to the often darkened and futile thinking of the Gentile or unbelieving world. And that's simply what that means. Remember, at, at this point in biblical history, the Gentiles are essentially everybody in the world that is not Israel. And the truth of Jesus Christ, the gospel, is moving into that world. So in the Bible, where we start to hear about the teachings of Jesus in these new places, these new cities like Ephesus, this is the first time this teaching has gone to that place. So at this point, the Gentile world is a reference to everybody that's never heard about Christ. And what he's saying here is this, this way of thinking, this seeing things through the perspective of God, will stand in contrast to the unbelieving world. This awareness, if you will, is something that God first gives us in his grace, but then calls us to work out in our lives. To pursue Jesus means we are constantly being made aware of new and meaningful things in our lives. We never fully, we don't reach a, a growth capacity in Christ. The truth is that we, we cannot outgrow him in our lives. The more we desire to know Jesus, the more Jesus will give us endless possibilities to know him in more meaningful ways. And so think of it this way. When God opens your mind to his ways, he expects you to begin the process of rethinking how you see whatever it is he's talking to you about. And please hear me here. Scripture isn't saying that life change comes by relying on your ability to think through these matters alone. This will be very important if you are a cognitive person, meaning if you are a person who deeply values the rhythms of logic and reason, which are very important tools in the world we have, I want to tell you that logic and reason also have failure points. We don't always reason things perfectly or logically come to exact conclusions. And so this is not a teaching telling us to elevate our minds. This is sort of the problem with the Enlightenment to elevate our minds above the reality of God. It's also a teaching that's highlighting the importance of the fact that we have minds, and God has given us these things to use them, to discern and determine matters of all, all areas of life, not just faith, but how faith applies to our lives. Using our minds is a good thing. But I want you to hear that our ability to think through matters alone is not enough to bring about the type of change, the type of sanctification we're talking about here. It's one tool in the box. It's the beginning of the box, we might say. That said, the Bible is trying to say that Jesus will never bring about life change in you or I until you and I are honest enough with him and to ourselves to admit that there are places we need to grow in our life. There are places where God is making us aware of new things, new springs in our lives that he wants to work in and change. And then we make at some point a conscious and I would say a concrete decision in God's grace to work out your salvation in those areas. In other words, God addresses something and then we, in the grace of God, try to press into whatever it is he's addressing in our lives. For example, have you ever met a person or been a person that didn't want to admit they had a stress or an anger problem who became more, uh, less stressful or angry? Stress, anger, anxiety, huge problems in our culture today. 
you're going to be hard-pressed to find somebody that can actually address these things in a meaningful way if they have no cognitive understanding that they're actually suffering from these things. Or a person, let's take it in the Christian world directly, a person who couldn't admit that the joy Jesus promised them has been lost in their life. Not lost meaning Jesus took it away, but for whatever reason, we can't access that area of our faith. Have you ever met a person who has lost their joy in the Lord, that has had it restored without going to the Lord and asking him to bring it back, without being aware of that problem? Have you ever seen a person seriously address an area of Christian ethics in their life? Let's just say in the areas of truthfulness or reliability, who is either unaware of the problem in their own life, or maybe even worse, was aware of it, but paid no attention to it. And they chose to flip off that light switch after God switched it on in their mind. In other words, they became aware of it and then just chose to suppress the truth of God in that area of their life. It is likely not that in any of these scenarios, the ones I'm not mentioning, that a person can genuinely have Christ-centered life change without the presence of Christ in our life and without us actually pressing into Jesus to bring it about, to work it out. We can't experience change in these areas of our life, any of them, because we are either unaware of the need for it if our minds are darkened, or even worse, we've had our eyes open to it and we have chosen to persist in the darkness. I'm not talking about struggling in the darkness. That's different. No Christian gets away from struggling with growth, but persisting in it. In other words, like basically saying, I choose the darkness over the light and I'm happy about it. That's a whole different animal. That's what Paul's talking about here. You see, once your mind is shown how to think like God's in whatever area of your physical, spiritual, ethical, or emotional life he's dealing with, once you grow in your knowledge of the truth of God and the word, our understanding of Jesus, our value for community, how we speak into each other's lives, once you begin to understand how God wants to reshape your life in certain areas and, frankly, in every area, this is all of us, we are supposed to deeply examine those areas with our mind. We're to examine our ways of thinking. Like, historically, what has caused us to think about this matter in our life this way? What is it that has caused us to see our value, our self-value, or lack of it this way? Why is it that I am so stressed or angry? What is it in my history? What is it in my present that is making me think like this? What is dragging me away from the truth of Jesus in these areas of life where Jesus wants his truth to reign supreme? We're supposed to deeply examine these areas with our mind. Examine our thought process, opinions, preferences, and light of God's epiphany in our lives. And so the summation of this teaching could go something like this. Even though God is the author of our salvation, yours and mine, to grow in Jesus, what we talked about last week and are talking about today, you must be willing to let Jesus bring about a new you. You've got to let Jesus wrestle with the old you. We don't just come to Jesus and then that's it. We come to Jesus And we spend the rest of our days becoming more like Jesus. And that requires us to grant Christ unbridled access to our lives. And he will do that through his scripture. He will do that through his voice directly. And he will often do that through the peer relationships we have with other men and women who love Jesus in the church. You'll never experience Christ-centered life change like we're talking about today until you work that out in the areas of your life that God calls your attention to and opens your mind to. If we don't desire that, or at least have the guts to say, God, I'm admitting that I don't desire that. That's actually a great place to be. It's the recognition that there is something in our life we wish we could be or we wish we could do, but we're just not there yet. To bring that up, to have that awareness in our mind and to bring that to God is a great thing because it means God has broken through. So if you're in that mode this morning, don't be discouraged by that. Be encouraged by the fact that you are hearing the voice of God. You would not see the light in those areas, even if you can't attain it right now, if God was not illuminating it. 
On the contrary, if we flip that switch, if we, if we choose, like Paul says, to sort of dwell in areas that are far from God, then we're claiming to follow God, but are actually living as if we are God. This is the challenge with this. If we get to the place where we can ignore God's voice when he shows things to us, then it means our heart has become hardened to the presence of Jesus and his salvation in our lives. We have received the gift, but we now choose to neglect it. And over time, a life like that tends to live less for Jesus and much more for ourselves. You can change for sure, but in a way contrary to God's desire for you. And it's worth noting, this is how we'll wrap up this morning. It's worth noting that in this section of Scripture, Paul does not begin this teaching on life change here by mentioning any particular changes yet. He's going to get to that down the road. But he does not begin by saying, here's a bunch of stuff you must do, now go do it. He focuses on our understanding of Jesus, and then commands us to do certain things. We're not even going to get to those things today. We're going to talk about the foundation that shapes those things. This is one of those places in Scripture where silence is saying more to us than words could when it comes to change. And here's why. In years past, some streams of thinking have been inclined to teach on a verse like this, one dealing with any type of growth, sanctification, life change, progress in the Christian faith by skipping over Jesus. The author of all the stuff I just mentioned the source of authority for us to become all the things I just mentioned, we skip over him and then immediately jump to a list of all the things the Bible says we should be doing if we are redeemed. In the Christian faith, this is a heresy we call moralism. It's essentially trying to live like Jesus without Jesus and then thinking that Jesus loves you because you act like him but don't really know him. It's a different God. That's the problem of moralism. Essentially, they skip over Jesus and say, if you want to change, the Bible says you should live like this right now. So just go live like that. And this is what we call in our church, we're not alone in this, our sort of network of churches, we call this behavior management. And if we solely see sanctification as behavior management, then it's a problem. And consequently, it's, it's a common way people try to change themselves. The majority of your 10 steps to something are behavior management. They're like, having trouble sleeping? Step one, sleep more. And you're like, well, thank you, Captain Obvious again, for telling me to sleep more. The problem is I'd like to sleep more, but I actually can't. Those create problems for us. They're not sticking points. And so as you think about becoming like Christ, uh, please make sure you know that seeking external change, that matters, but it's not where we begin. If we seek external change disconnected from Christ-centered change, it will appear, and maybe in some senses it's a little easier to bring that about in our lives for a season, but it will guarantee you don't really change because it usually deals with the symptoms of what we're trying to change, not the root of the problem itself. This is the truth about our gospel also. We say that we want to know the truth of the gospel. The root is what grows the flower. And so if we want to understand how to deal with the, the challenges we have in our life, it does us well to get past the symptom and look at the root of, its, of why it's informing what it's informing. The best example I've ever heard of this, and I shared it with you three years ago, I'm going to share it with you again, because it is, I think, the best example of this. I read it from a a pastor, I, I don't agree with everything that he says, but I greatly admire him. His name is N.T. Wright. And he gave this example. I'm just going to share it with you. I'm sharing with you his illustration. Imagine, if you will, that you are going to take a vacation somewhere in the mountains. And, uh, and you need to do that in about two months. And so you say, I don't want to sleep in a tent. I'm going to try to get with a local realtor's office. And I know that they will rent property up there. And I'm going to go to this place or call this place and, and rent a place to stay in the mountains for a couple of weeks. And so you find an office and you start calling them. For weeks, you're calling them about the rental. Sometimes the phone rings and nobody picks up. Sometimes the phone rings and people pick up. 
And when they pick up, they say, oh, that's a great part of the country. You'll really enjoy it there. Give me your name and your number, and I'll call you back. Or we'll have, we'll have somebody call you back to finalize those details. And you do that multiple times, and they actually never call you back. So you keep calling now because your vacation time is getting close. And you're leaving messages. And finally, you realize that if you don't get this place booked, you're not going to have a place to stay. You're not going on a vacation. So you go down to the office, and you talk to somebody directly to get the problem solved. When you arrive, you notice some interesting things about the office. All the office workers are working. It looks like they're put together and they're doing their work. They're answering their phones, they're taking notes, they seem pretty competent. But there's an issue behind the office. You also notice that there's a manager behind all of this that is an entirely different story. You can see right away he's not a really good manager, a poor manager we might say. He's yelling at all the employees, he's filing papers erratically, he's clearly mishandling all of the information the employees are bringing to him. You see they're writing down names and numbers and handing it to him, but because he's kind of a control freak, he, he will not allow his employees to make these bookings, and he certainly doesn't have the capacity to return the calls. Everything's getting run through him, and he's a mess, and nobody can do their job properly because of it. Now in this situation, you've got two options to address this problem. The first is you can unwisely think you'll fix this issue by continuing to talk to the employees. Because the truth is, is in this situation, they are the symptom and they are powerless to bring about any direct change. Or you can wisely recognize if you want to get that vacation house booked for two weeks, you need to get in touch with the office manager. Because the employees here are not the problem. They are the symptom of a much deeper issue, a managerial issue. And so just dealing with the employees or getting frustrated with the employees, it'll do nothing but exhaust you. And at the end of the day, it will change nothing. You'll never get that house because the employee is not the problem. This is how we see and understand change in our lives at times. This is how we understand sanctification in our lives at times. We believe that the Christian life is just about changing behaviors. And I will make a strong case for the fact that behavior really matters. Cannot get away from that in the Bible. But that is not the beginning point for how we really experience change. When we believe like this, like the office, what we do is we say, in order to follow Jesus well, um, change simply means I've got to get my body to stop doing some things and to start doing other things. You can actually do that and not know Jesus at all. But the Bible tells us something different. Like, for example, let me, let me give you an example of this. The Bible says, like, don't stress. So therefore, you just read that verse and you say, I'm going to stop stressing. If you've ever really, really dealt with stress, you know that the words stop stressing are not enough to bring about the change, at least a lasting change. Well, the Bible says, hey, hey, don't be anxious. Wouldn't it be terrible if, like Paul in Philippians said, be anxious in nothing? There you go. And that was the end of the book of Philippians, right? Be anxious in nothing. There you go. That is what we call behavior change. Changing behavior like this at best works for a season. You might be able to suppress it, but you're going to get stressed and anxious again. If you want to be free and live in the peace of Christ, you actually need Jesus to deal with stress and anxiety in ways that we cannot on our own. And for some, this doesn't work at all. It creates a a cycle of failure, meaning they say, I read that verse, or I heard that person, or I read that 10-step list, and I tried, and it didn't work, and now I'm just more frustrated than I was before I tried. It's like a cycle of defeat. For some, it doesn't work at all, and it might even deepen the problem. Why? Because living like this in Christianity is equivalent, according to N.T. Wright, of doing business with the office assistants, not the root of the problem, the manager, your heart. Your mind and your heart, you are aware of something to the point where God begins to bring about change in your life. In this case, the stress is merely a symptom of a much deeper heart attitude. The anxiety is a symptom of a much deeper heart attitude. And the questions that we should be asking in an area like this is, why does anxiety reign supreme in my life? 
Well, that is likely connected in part to the fact that there is a, a distrust of God. That's not the only thing that can cause anxiety, but it is certainly one of the things in the Christian faith that can. We can, for whatever reasons, believe that in a world where God tells us, be at peace, I am in control. We, we can't believe that. And that's going to make a stressful life, in part anyways. This is the truth, or the truths we've got to start thinking about, that we've got to start working out. If we really want to see true and lasting life change in that or any area of our life, and so as we move to response time, as we wrap up this morning, I want you to think about this. If, if, if you want to work out your salvation and experience life change, then you have to let Jesus reshape the way you think. You've got to let him introduce new truths into your head. Ones that might trump truths that are not truths. It's funny sometimes. Sometimes the things we think are true in our lives are actually lies. Like if you think I feel better because I'm anxious or stressing, that's not a good truth. That's a false narrative that can really redefine life. What we want to do is get to the place where truth trumps that. We've got to let Jesus work in our minds and in our hearts in a way that we begin to think like Jesus. We've got to let him work this way in our lives so that we can change at the core of our being. And that is a lifelong process. It's a forever thing. It's not like a one-time thing. This is why we said at the beginning of this teaching, sanctification is really God continually working in our lives. He never stops, and that's a really beautiful truth. He is never content with letting us rest or look to things that are not him. He doesn't want us resting in those things or pursuing those things. He loves us enough to continually work out his grace in our lives. And that should really say something about the love and the care our Father has for us. That is true sanctification. It's when Jesus peels the layers of our lives back that don't reflect him, and he, he replaces them with the image of himself. It's okay. In fact, I would argue very strongly, we should be comfortable with recognizing we will always have layers Jesus wants to work through. And so as we close this morning, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about the gift of salvation he's given you? How do you see it? How do you understand it? How have you cared for it? Maybe you're here saying, you know, I don't even really understand what it means. to. I hear you talking about this gift, but I don't really understand what that gift is. We would love to be able to help you understand the first part of what Paul talked about, that the gift of grace in Christ is free to you that he has died so that you can know him in new and meaningful ways. Or maybe you're here saying, you know, I have been, I've been redeemed for a very long time, but I struggle with the growth side of things. Or sometimes I wonder if I really am growing. If you are in these places, wherever you are, recognize salvation as a gift to you and ask yourself, what are you going to do about it when you leave this place? How will you work to value the gift of grace Jesus has given you?